0: So here's a question for you. How many of you like TV shows that are about courtroom dramas? Yeah, isn't it fascinating? Uh, this is a guilty pleasure, but I love watching shows that deal with trials and courts and what arguments they're going to make and how they're going to try to make their case. And and for those of you that have watched or those of you that have, have been in court a lot, which hopefully isn't you, um, what is the, the prosecution trying to get? They're trying to get evidence beyond what? Beyond a reasonable doubt. And if they can prove their case beyond a reasonable doubt, then hopefully the jury will agree with them and they'll get a prosecution. The defense is trying to put doubt in there and say, well, you know, what if the, the sun rose that morning? Or I don't know what. Some, some sort of reasonable doubt. And, and it's, a, it's a great metaphor for what James is about to do in, in his book, in the epistle of James. He's going to a little bit, and what, what we've been seeing all along, but he's basically putting faith on trial and saying, okay, can your faith be proven? Do you have saving faith? There's all kinds of different faith, right? In fact, we live in a culture where it's very popular to say right now, I am a person of faith. Do you, are you a Christian? Well, no, I'm a person of faith. And that means so many different things. It's about as vague as you can get to say, well, I'm still spiritual, so don't knock me for for not being spiritual. But really, I don't have to commit to anything. It's sort of faith light because I don't have to say what it represents. And sometimes we can fall into that trap and say, we want to do as little as possible to follow Christ. I want my fire insurance. I'm good, but don't ask me for anything else. Kent Hughes once tells of a, a cartoon church billboard that, he's, that he was reading, and it was for Light Church. And, and I thought this was a, a, a joke, so just take it as that. But um, I thought it was sort of a sad commentary too. Light Church, 24% fewer commitments, home of the 5% tithe, 15-minute sermons, 45-minute worship services. We only have eight commandments, and you get to choose which eight. We use just three spiritual laws, everything you wanted in a church, and less. The sad thing is we sort of come to faith that way. And and we sort of look in Christianity, it can be our tendency, and my prayer is that it's not, it can be our tendency to say, okay, what do I have to do to get by? What's the minimum I have to do to make God happy, to make sure that I'm getting to heaven okay, What's the minimum? And we're going to find in James that that's not what God's Word teaches. In fact, nothing we do gets us to heaven. In f- nothing we, can, we, we can't earn it. But if we have the kind of faith that saves, if we have the kind of genuine faith in Jesus Christ our Lord because He died on the cross for our sins and rose again on the third day, and the kind of faith that gives ourselves to Him, it will result in a commitment that is far more than just doing the minimum. It will result in changed behavior and changed actions, changed allegiances, a changed love for Jesus Christ. And so we've been hearing this through James. We've been hearing be a doer of the word and not just a hearer, as James is arguing that we have to put it into practice for it to really have affected us, really to have changed us. He's talked about true Christianity. And, and two weeks ago, we said, he asked, what's true Christianity? What's true religion? And, and he just started to give examples of that. And he said, it's caring for the needy, caring for the widows, caring for the orphans, keeping oneself unstained from the world, controlling the tongue. Just, yeah, just get right to the hard stuff. But he's, he's talking about what kinds of actions represent a faith that is true. He's talked about not showing partiality last week because true faith, true Christianity is incompatible, completely at odds with favoritism. It's completely at odds with prejudice. And prejudice has no place in genuine saving faith. And so he's been working up to this passage in James chapter 2. And as we look at 14 through 26 of James 2, I would argue this is the center point, the crown jewel of the book of James. Up until th- this point, he's been leading up to this. After this, he's explaining it and giving examples and saying, this is how it works out in real life. But today, we get the, 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 the heart of the book, the heart of James, that we are to have a faith, a true faith that genuinely works, that genuinely affects our behavior. In fact, if it has not affected our lives, then we need to ask the question, is it true saving faith? And so this morning, this is a hard passage. This is a passage that I would challenge us each to look inside as we talk about this. To look inside. And and we may have to ask the question, am I saved? Do I have true saving faith? Or if we we are saved, have I let my faith slip by letting my behavior slip? Have I let the implications of my faith slip because I'm not as walking close to God in every area of my life? So we're going to talk about true faith now i know coming into this passage there's all kinds of discussion about is james disagreeing with paul and let me just explain that up front real quickly we get that out of the way because we're going to hit it throughout a little bit paul says we're saved by saved by grace saved by faith and faith alone in galatians 3 16 he says yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law it's an important phrase there but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. And so you can read a verse like that and say, okay, how does that compare to James who's going to say faith without works is dead? Faith without works doesn't really save you. And here's the thing. James and Paul are are perfectly compatible with each other. They're just focusing on different parts of salvation. Paul is, is focusing on what is required to save you. What is the essential thing that saves you? And it's faith in Jesus Christ. And so his focus primarily when he says this is what is leading up to salvation. What brings about the initial act of salvation. James is more dealing with sanctification and saying, okay, how do you know in a courtroom, how would you prove that that faith is real and not just words? Because the thing is, saying a prayer in Sunday school when you're five doesn't save you. And before you start throwing things at me right now, Those those words are not magic. Those words are are just words. What saves you is if there's a faith and an understanding behind those words. And what James is saying, let me describe what that faith and understanding looks like so you know if it was just words or if it was genuine faith. Both would say faith saves you. James is saying this is what true faith actually looks like and this is the evidence to know it was there. It okay, makes sense. I know that's, that's a brief thing that books are written about, but we'll just, we'll leave that there, and then as we go through the passage, hopefully that will make sense, and then we'll, um, we'll do a handy dandy little chart at the end. I think it's at the end of your notes, too, to help understand that, because this is, um, James with Pastor Ron. Um, and so, when we come to faith versus works, it's not an either-or. It's not a one or another. It's both must be there. Both must be true. They are not enemies, but they go hand in hand. True faith always results in godly work in our lives. If you have to remember anything, remember that this morning. True faith always results in godly works in our lives. doesn't mean we don't deal with sin. It doesn't mean we're, still, uh, we're, we're not still being sanctified daily. But it results in godly works in our lives. So let's look at what God's word says. Turn with me to James chapter 2. James chapter 2. And we're going to be looking at 14 through 26 today. So we're going to have to move pretty quickly through this. Um, James chapter 2, 14 through 26. And I actually want to start by reading the whole text, and then we'll break it apart and, and look at some of the different aspects. But I'll start at verse 14. Let's pray and dig into it. Lord God, oh, we have this challenging passage in front of us. You're putting a challenging mirror in front of us, as James has already talked about. And I pray that this morning, every person in this room would look in the mirror, look at our lives and see what you want us to see today. Lord, step on our toes, challenge us, convict us, make us more like you. In your name, amen. So we start at verse 14. And we, we got the whole sense of the passage there, which I think is so vital in understanding this passage. But verse 14 starts with his question, his proposition, so to speak. And it says, what good is it if someone says he has faith but does not have works? So he's been talking about all this practical stuff, and he just talked about mercy overcoming judgment. And so he's going to dig into, okay, what kind of faith actually saves us? And so he says, "What what what good is it if someone has faith? And so, it, it's, does it matter? Does it have any effect? Does this kind of faith actually make a difference? If he says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? And so he's putting a a question out there. What if someone is constantly saying they have faith? I'm a Christian! I'm a Christian! Is that enough? And his his answer, and both of these, are the answer is implied no. And so it's what good is it if someone says he has faith but has no works? The implied answer is no good. It's worthless. Can that faith save him? The implied answer is no. And so claims of Christianity is, is what he's dealing with, that that kind of faith that just claims it but doesn't live it has no value. It doesn't save us. We can say we have faith, We can read the Bible, we can go to church, and we can never have true saving faith. The the, the thing with a passage like this and why this, this passage is so important for us to teach through and why this is such a burden in my heart this morning is there may be people sitting in this room that have been coming to village for 20 years and not be saved. And I love you too much to not cover this passage and try to get to the heart of that. Because I want every person in this room to know my Lord and Savior. And every person in this room to have the kind of faith that repents of our sin and puts ourselves completely in His grasp and lets Him do with us what He will. That's a faith that saves. But just saying you're a Christian or just coming to church, that does nothing for you. And quite frankly, if, if you don't have a saving faith and you're not really walking with God, I'm not sure why you're here during football season. Be, because this doesn't do anything for you. Now I am glad you're here, but my hope is that it's to build a saving faith. To build a, a faith that is strong and vibrant, that is doing something for God. Because He did everything for us. And so so James here is going to start to talk about faith. and In the next two sections, he's going to talk about two kinds of worthless faith. He's going to give us two pictures of faith that we can commonly fit into, that people for all ages have commonly fit into, that are just worthless faith. And the first one in verses 14 through 17 is a workless faith. Now understand the difference between a worthless faith and a workless faith. Those are two different words, but Actually, a workless faith is always a worthless faith. And so the first thing he describes is a workless faith, faith without works, faith that is talk and appearance but is not accompanied by actions of care and obedience. If we're looking for evidence of faith in the courtroom, it's actions prove more than words. Actions prove more than words. Is that generally true? Yeah, I had a great illustration this morning I was going to use for this and my my one of my kids... (laughs) Almost gave away too much. One of my kids just ruined it for me this morning. See, one of my kids said, I'm going with you to church early, Dad. And um, I'm like, great, great. And I got we were five minutes from when I was going to leave, and they are still just sawing logs sound asleep in bed. I'm like, I have the perfect illustration. All talk, but not actually doing it. This is it. And so so I go get do the final things to get ready. I come out, and they're sitting there ready to go. I'm like, no, my illustration, it's gone. Go back to bed. No, no, I'm glad they were here. But we do test what someone says by what they do. And this is where James is going to go. Let's read verses 15 through 17 and get the weight of this passage. Verse 15 if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and so he's setting up what would be a common example, and we know this. We deal with this in our own church body. We deal with this as we drive down the road. He's talking about people that don't have enough clothes, that don't have enough food. They're struggling. There's needs there. And so he sets this up, and this is right after talking about partiality and the rich and the poor and the service. He says, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, And one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled. Without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? And so he just gets right to a practical example, right? just gets right into it and says, if you're not doing something about the needs that you see, that is not a godly faith. That is not a faith that works. It's not a faith that means anything. And the go in peace there, that would have come from like shalom. It would have been a fairly common um, greeting. It was a fairly common goodbye. And this would be equivalent to be saying goodbye and good day. But it also had spiritual overtones. If you look at the tenses of it and the passive tense, the, the spiritual overtones are don't worry about it. God will provide your needs. Have a great day. I know you're struggling. God will provide your needs. See you later. I have to go to lunch. That's the idea here. Or or maybe, and, and, and I, I'm just bringing pictures in to help us understand, maybe you're walking along and you have a, a great burger from Angelo's. And um, if you haven't been to Angelo's, it's down the street. It's awesome burgers. And, you know, in between bites, you're like, oh, man, I, I feel for you. I know that you're hurting. I hope you get enough food. God's going to provide. Wait, I got to the end of the bite. And, and, you're t- and then you leave what hypocrisy and and when we have an ability to meet needs and we choose not to and we choose not to care then james is saying that is a problem in our walk with god it's a spiritual problem more than anything else it's a problem of what we believe about god and what we believe god has done in our life well and and it goes on because it says go in peace be warmed and filled which James is specifically using that wording to show the person saying it knows what the needs are and still refuses to help. This is hard to to read. But this is the kind of person that is all talk and no walk. And I think it's hard to read too because I think we've all been there. And I think we've all been able to do something to help somebody, but we just didn't have the time. Or it was inconvenient. Or we had all kinds of reasons why they just needed to do things better. And James is just getting right to it. And and this is just one example, but he's saying if we aren't willing to care for each other, even at inconvenience, even at, at, at personal sacrifice then that is not the kind of faith that Jesus exercised when He died on the cross for you and for me. And we're not following Christ's example and we don't have a saving faith. This is hard. One one person wrote, the people who won't help often talk the loudest. The paralysis which affects the arms does not interfere with the tongue. Ouch. Ouch. See, the question is, the proof The proof is, what do we do with our faith? What do we do when those are in need around us? See, in verse 17, James just makes sure we're not confused by what kind of faith this is. So he says, so also, just like this example, so also faith, or the words, or just saying I have faith, by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. How often can a dead person help someone else? Not often. They're dead. And, and and they can't go and get food for somebody. They can't they can't help somebody move. They can't care for somebody or write a note of encouragement. They're dead. And James is using black and white terms here that we dare not minimize. He's using black and white terms to say, if this doesn't characterize us, if this isn't who we are, then your faith is dead. Which means it's also dead in its saving power. The word there is useless, inert, unable to do anything. That's the concept between 14 and 17. And so the first, the first damaging faith, the first, first worthless faith that James describes is a workless faith. Now, we can look at this and and we can think works and we can think works of the law, which Paul was talking about. Those are actually different kinds of works entirely. The, The better word here for works is just actions. Actions that flow out of a faith in Christ. Actions such as caring for those who are in need. Such as not showing favoritism. Such as being humble or being slow to speak or slow to anger. James has already given us a plethora of examples of this. And actions mean something. They're the evidence of saving faith. They're an inseparable direct result of saving faith. But they do not save on their own. See, the issue here isn't faith versus works. as so many want to, to make this in, in the, theological circles. The issue isn't faith versus works. It's dead faith versus live faith. It, it's faith that works and faith that doesn't. It's saving faith versus worthless faith. if our Christianity does not show up in our actions, we aren't Christians. Think about that this morning. And I know we can talk about falling away and backsliding and we can have those discussions. But the general truth is, if our Christianity does not show up in our actions, we aren't Christians. And I, I know this is a dad joke, but I'm a dad so I can get away with these. Just because you sit in your garage doesn't make you a car. Right? Just because you sit in church doesn't make you a Christian. Just, in, just because you said a prayer doesn't mean you're saved. It's the heart and the faith behind it. You know, I, I, I have a cookbook here. Chocolate chip cookies. See, I, I want to prove to you I am a great baker. And I can make great cookies right? So you put two two and a quarter cups of all-purpose flour, put a teaspoon of baking soda, a teaspoon of salt, a cup of butter margarine. You have to soften it first. Um, three quarters cup of granulated sugar, three quarters cup packed brown sugar, the more the better. A teaspoon vanilla extract, two eggs, two cups of, of Toll House chocolate morsels. You could double that part if you want. Um, one cup chopped diamond walnuts. And you combine the, the flour, baking soda, and salt. I could go on and read. Now, doesn't that prove I'm a good baker? <laughs> no. If, if my daughter was in here, she'd be like, no, Dad, no, don't do it. <laughs> she actually is a good baker and follows that recipe. What's the proof of whether I could bake? The cookies. Reading it means nothing. Now, It doesn't minimize reading it. It's helpful to follow a recipe. You don't want me to cook if I'm not following a recipe. But the proof is what comes from after following the recipe if I've put that into action. And so it's cookies and probably before you evaluate my baking skills, you might want to taste the cookies. Just like saying we're a believer, memorizing some verses. Those are good. Studying God's Word is good professing our faith is good but if it isn't accompanied by actions then we have to question whether it's real you know christ repeatedly made this point joshua read the passage out of the worship folder where he's making this point and we'll read that a little later Um, with the sheep and the goats in matthew 25 he talks about the sheep on the right and and come inherit the kingdom and the goats on the left And they asked, well, what's the difference? And he said, when I was hungry, when I was thirsty, the sheep, you fed me. It's not saying those works saved you, but their faith exhibited itself in those works. You did something with it. You cared about people made in the image of God. You acted on your faith. And the goats, it was, oh, I, I don't know you. You didn't do those things. Yeah, you talked a good talk, but you didn't do those things. And I think in this section, James is just reflecting on Jesus' words. Actually, most of James, I think he's reflecting on his big brother's words. Because he's had a change of heart. And he's giving us an incredible commentary on it. The false claims of faith are silenced by the lack of evidence. So so how do we apply this? See, the the questions we have to ask ourselves is have we met Christ? Has Christ done anything in your life? Has He sacrificed anything for you? Has He changed you? If He has, then let's get our hands dirty. Then let's work. And the word for work here implies energy or effort. Guys, if we're to work for Christ, if we're to to live out our faith, it takes a little bit of energy and effort. It's not going to happen on the couch with a remote control or a video game control. It takes effort. So let's get our hands dirty. Let's ask the question, how do we care for needs? And, and that means we got to look around and ask what needs are there. How can we make a difference in those needs? Are we willing to get outside of our own controlled, beautiful lives and help others even when it's inconvenient? You know, ideas. What if you took a meal to someone this week that you knew was in was need? Whether it's financial need or whether it's just need in general of, of life pressing in. If you're not able to do that, give a gift card. If someone's moving, offer to help move. We've got to get some skin in the game and get our hands dirty to actually help and care for each other. When talk gets raunchy at work, walk away. Or if they're Christians, have enough guts to say something and say, this isn't right. That's putting feet to our faith. That's that's putting action to our faith. I love what we've done with with being pro-life. And we we talk about that a lot. But this church has done so much more than pro-life. Because you can say you're pro-life all you want. But are you helping a crisis pregnancy center? Are we helping? Are we fostering? Are we adopting? Are we supporting those that can? It's one thing to say something. It's another thing to do something. This week, this week... Find a way to put some action to your faith. Find a way to help someone. Find a way to encourage someone. Maybe write them a note. To do this, you're going to have to leave space in your schedule. If you try to do it with a schedule that already accounts for 25 hours a day, and yes, I did mean 25, if your schedule already is that full, you won't have time to do this. Your faith won't have time to blossom and do what God wants it to do you have to schedule time schedule yourself an hour to say i'm going to find a way to care for someone this week for some of you with daily planners you're like okay i could do that others of you like oh man that sounds so rigid no no scheduling's good (laughs) but we've got to find ways to put our faith into action and so james describes a workless faith as a work as a worthless faith it's a tongue tongue twister in verses 18 and 19, he now describes another faith that is worthless, an intellectual faith. And I can see people reading it saying, okay, we gotta, we got to work at our faith. We, it should do something. It should influence our lives. I'm going to study more. I'm going to dig into to academics. And I'm going to really dig into the, the deeper things of Christianity. And then I'm showing myself to be a Christian. And James is going to attack that, not that the academia is wrong and not that intellectual faith is wrong, but if that's all there is, he calls it demonic. And that is a strong word. So James says the second worthless faith is an intellectual faith. Faith that knows the Bible, knows about God, but ends there is demonic. Again, if we're looking for evidences of faith, actions prove more than knowledge. And I'm not criticizing knowledge. Everyone on staff here has advanced degrees. I'm not criticizing knowledge, but it's how knowledge is used. And is it used for self? And is it used for knowledge itself? Or is it used for the church and building the kingdom of God? Completely different. So in verse 18, we see, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. And, and there, there's all kinds of debate about this that I'm not going to get into about where the quotes end and, and where they um, where they start. But... I think ESV probably has it right in what you have there. Someone will say, you have faith and I have works. And this is an imaginary adversary. And the idea of what they're saying is, you know what? There's really no connection. You, Joe, you can have faith. And I'm going to have works. And we're both good. We're both going to make it into the kingdom because we all have different gifts anyway. So, So maybe your gift is to serve people and help people and my gift is to just read and be by myself because that's sort of cool and so this adversary doesn't see a connection between faith and works and that's where, where james is going to attack because then the show me your faith is probably james's response show me your faith apart from your works you really think they're separate because i'll show you my faith by my works And James here is arguing for an inseparability between faith and works. You can't separate them. Logically, you can't. Spiritually, you can't. They must go together. They are interconnected. And one always follows the other. And so he's attacking this sort of intellectual attitude about it. And in case we don't know that's what he's talking about, he gets right to it in 19. You believe that God is one. And he's quoting the Shema there out of Deuteronomy 6. And this is what the children of Israel, they would recite this twice a day. This was a core belief for them. That God is one. Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Those of you that have gone to Wildwood, you know this. You have said this. At least once a day there, right? And, and so it's not bad to say, it's not bad to hold to scripture. But he says, you believe that God is one, and he's talking about this intellectual ascent to faith. You can agree with that. You can say that. You can go through the ritual. And he says, and you do well. Good doctrine's good. And then he just kicks in the gut. Even the demons believe and shudder. And so he says, yeah, okay, you can have good doctrine. But let's take the Lord God as one. The demons even believe that. In fact, they knew that Jesus was God. They knew Jesus' deity before most others if you read the gospel. They know these things, but it's a head knowledge. And if we think of head, heart, and hands, when we just have an intellectual faith, it stops at the head. It's just about what knowledge I can have. And I've known people that know the Bible better than I do. And they can pick out little verses that say this, but it has never reached their heart in a relationship with Jesus Christ, and it has never reached their hands in actions or good works for Jesus Christ. And James, I am not—I am not trying to stir the pot by saying it's demonic. God did through James. So talk to him. It says even the demons believe in Shudder. That kind of faith is what demons have. It's demonic. Because when we have that kind of knowledge about God and who He is and we don't love Him for what He's done, we don't respond to Him and give our heart to Him, and we then aren't influenced in our behavior and our actions, that's sick. It's demonic because we are resisting God at that point. To know the truth and resist it is a horrible place to be. So he says, even the demons believe and tremble several of the guys. In fact, we were talking in the office this week. It's interesting that at least the demons tremble. Whereas most humans with an intellectual faith alone, they don't even tremble at it anymore. They're they're hardened to it. I have been to, to lectures and seminars from amazing scholars of the Word that I wasn't even sure if they were believers when I left. Because it was that dry and lifeless... There was no shuddering. There was no awe of God. But hey, we got the Greek right. That's demonic. True faith must change the heart and it must show in the actions. And this is, this is part of my heart for, for Bible colleges and my concern for Bible colleges is we do so well at, 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 at learning the intellectual side of things, the academic side of things, and we forget the practical so often. And, it, and if there's a class or there's a teacher and a lecture where it's been all intellectual and we haven't even gone to how this affects our lives, we haven't even gone to what Jesus has done, then that's a problem. And it's teaching a false faith. It's heresy. And we have to be careful of that because I've seen people in the church devolve into the same thing. I want to go to the classes where we get deep. And, and we get to define deep ourselves, don't we? Well, deep does be digging into God's Word. And I pray at Village, we always dig into God's Word. But I pray we also apply it because if we don't apply it, we haven't gone deep. We've stayed at a surface level of what some words mean. Village, we have to put our faith into practice. And it's got to go beyond what we know. And it's got to reach the rest of our hearts. Quote by Bonhoeffer. I know a few weeks ago I didn't read the quote by Bonhoeffer I had. This week I will because I got all kinds of grief over that. Bonhoeffer talks about cheap grace. And he's talking about a a cheap faith here, a faith that doesn't get to our heart or actions. He says, cheap grace means grace is a doctrine, a principle, a system. It means forgiveness of sin proclaimed as a general truth. The love of God taught as the Christian conception of God. An intellectual assent to that idea is held to be of itself sufficient to secure remission of sins. Now, there's nothing there that's bad. But he's saying if that's all there is, this intellectual ascent, you see there's nothing personal about those, those lines. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. It's baptism without church discipline. It's grace without discipleship. It's grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Village my heart for us as we get beyond cheap grace. Now, my heart for us is that we know God's Word incredibly well, but that it shows in our daily lives. Because James is saying if it doesn't show in our daily lives, that's worthless. It's a dead faith. Love your Savior again. Be in awe of your Savior again. Don't get used to what He's done. Be in awe of it. Be willing to step out in faith for Him every minute of your life to bring glory to Him. Get beyond the head and let it change your heart and your hands and your actions. I think the intellectual faith is one of the most dangerous faiths, if that's all there is, because I think it's the one where we can think we're saved and maybe not be saved. Jesus wants a relationship with us, He wants our hearts and our heads. We're to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That includes the head, the mind, the heart, the soul, strength, our actions, village. Jesus wants it all. Are we willing to give it to Him? Thomas Kempis says, On the day of judgment, surely we shall not be asked what we have read, but what we have done. Not how well we have spoken, but... How well we have lived. That's in your notes as well, and I would highlight that and just think about that. So, then for the rest of the passage, James moves on, and we need to move on as well. And he gives two examples of of living faith two examples of faith that show a faith that works, that show this, this interesting combination of faith that affects actions as well as the heart and the mind. And his point of these is that true faith and actions are inseparable. And the first one he gets to is Abraham in verses 1 through, or 20 to 24. And he introduces the examples by saying, Do you want to be shown, you foolish person? There's a little bit of passion behind James's words there. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Do you need more proof of my point, is what he's saying. So let's look at a couple of heroes of judaism heroes of the faith and he says was not abraham our father justified by works when he offered his up his son isaac on the altar and he's using the hero of, of the jewish faith and he and abraham we know was promised by god and god called him and in genesis 15 He responds to God and it says that he believed in God and that belief was counted to him as righteousness. And he was promised a son. And for the next 25 years, no son. And and he went up and he wavered on his faith sometimes and tried to get a son by his own methods. But God finally brought a, a son to him 25 years later. And then as that son grew up, God said, I want you to take him up to the mountain and I want you to sacrifice him to me. Hard story. Hard for me to understand how God would ask that. But we know from Scripture that God was testing him. He says, I want to know if it's true faith. I want to know if you love your son more or if you love me more. I want to know if you love your dream more or you love me more. Where is your faith? And we know that Abraham took Isaac up to that mountain. The same mountain where Jesus would someday be crucified for us. And Abraham took Isaac up to that mountain and tied him up and had him ready to be sacrificed. And God intervened and said, No, I know your faith now. And so James references that and says, Wasn't Abraham our father justified by works when he offered his son up his son Isaac on the altar. And now we know that 25 years earlier was when he was justified, but James is saying this is the point where it was proven. And that word for justified also means proven righteous. And this is where his faith was proven when he put it into action and was willing to sacrifice everything for Jesus Christ. Or for God. He didn't know Jesus yet. And and James goes on in 22, you see that faith was active along with his works. They were working together. That word there is synergia, working with. That faith must be accompanied by, by works or it's not real faith. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and was counted to him as righteousness. And then a phrase that I just love in this passage And he was called a friend of God. And James here is saying, look at the relationship here. He had a relationship with God. It was out of that relationship and faith that his obedience and works flowed. This wasn't just trying to work harder and trying to do more. But it was loving God more and being more in relationship with Him and strengthening faith that turned into actions. And that was the purpose of that faith or that was the result of that faith rather is these actions of obedience. See, what we act on is what we actually believe. This weekend we are celebrating Memorial Day. And we are celebrating men and women who were willing to give their lives for what they believed and for our country. Don't minimize that sacrifice. Their sacrifice of their lives proved that they were willing to stand for our country and proved that they were willing to stand for our freedom. We don't celebrate Memorial Day for those that ran away and didn't fight. They were put in prison. But even in our holidays, we recognize true belief must be followed by actions that support it. Abraham was willing to give everything. You know, you, you think of parenting. Your child's behavior when when you try to discipline them or when you threaten discipline probably will change if they believe you'll actually carry it out, right? If if your child doesn't think you'll carry out your threat, good luck. They're not going to obey because they 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 will they will follow what they believe. Now, if they know that you'll carry it out if they know that you'll stand up and turn off the Xbox of the machine, they're more apt to obey. Our actions follow what we actually believe. You can look up Hebrews 11 sometime, um, 17 through 19. talks more about the faith of Abraham and when he was tested and that this was showing what his faith was, showing what true faith was. The second example is given in um, 25. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? And we go back to the story of Joshua and Jericho and the spies come and she protects them and houses them, sends them out another way and and sends the people chasing them um, a different direction and she gives them information that will help them take the city of Jericho. She risked her life to do this. She risked her life to follow what God said to do. And so in 25, it says, In the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? And again, you have to read that word justified as proven righteous, proven faith. And it was proven that she was willing to risk herself for who God is. Her faith was proven by her actions. These two two examples, village, tell us what kind of faith saving faith is. It's a faith that's willing to sacrifice all for God. Put God first beyond all else. It's willing to put ourselves at personal risk or inconvenience to do what God wants. That is a saving faith. And you cannot separate those actions from the faith. Martin Luther said, it is impossible to separate works from faith as impossible to separate burning and shining from fire. It's a great way of wording that. Are we willing to sacrifice self? Are we willing to, to say, Jesus is more important than anything else in my life? Because he died on the cross in my place, a death I should have died and I deserve to die. And then he rose again the third day and he gives me hope and he has adopted me into the family of God. He has given me everything. Can I give him some of my actions? Oh, I hope so. Otherwise, we haven't been impacted by what he's done and by that faith. And so James wraps it all up in verse twenty six. This is his main point, and I, I didn't write out a main point because the verse is the main point. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. And that's his thesis statement, that's the summary. That's the the verse that we're asking you to memorize this week. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead. And that word for spirit, it can mean that immaterial part of us. It also is the word for breath and and breathing. And so he's using a a real example of, of a body that is dead, a corpse. If it stopped breathing, that's a bad sign. That means it's dead. That means the spirit has gone out of it. And that's the illustration he uses for faith that has no actions with it, that has no works, that is either only talk or only intellectual. It's dead, worthless, and accomplishes nothing. Village, this morning I ask us to test our faith. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13.5, Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or or do you not recognize this about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail the test? And so I ask us to look in the mirror James talks about in chapter 1. Look in the mirror of God's Word and say, "Am am I a Christian? Some of you may need to ask that question. Am I a believer? Am I a believer? But for all of us, Do I have saving faith or have I gotten apathetic in my faith? Have I gotten so used to coming to church and Christianity that I'm just going through the motions now and I no longer am showing evidences of faith? If someone followed you with a drone this week and recorded every action you had, would they know you were a believer? Oh, I pray they would. That's what... We are confronted with in this passage of James. I put a graph there that helps us understand, and on the left is true saving faith in the work of Christ. And that's the originator of of everything James is talking about, this true saving faith. And it'll lead two places. At the top, it'll lead to salvation, because it's saving faith. True faith will save us. But then it will also, in the second half, it will also lead to works to godly works that put that faith into practice. But don't make the mistake of equating the the, the results, the effects of the truth-saving faith, by making those causative of each other. Works do not cause salvation. And we know that scripturally, and this comes back to the debate between Paul and James. Nobody here is saying that if you do the right thing, you're saved. And if you read the Bible enough, you're saved. And if you somehow confess enough, you're saved. What we're saying is true saving faith in the work of Christ is what brings salvation. But if it's true, it will bring a change in behavior too. Chicago-based newspaper Streetwise is sold by homeless people who collect a portion of the proceeds. And so this is how the homeless people support themselves. This author, Joseph Stowell, says one day he was walking to work. He passed a Streetwise vendor. It was a bitterly cold January morning. He'd already stopped by Starbucks and paid more than a buck or five for a measly cup of coffee. Feeling noble, he struggled to find his wallet, reached in and took out a dollar and bought a paper. The homeless woman asked, do you really want the paper or can I sell it to someone else and and provide a little bit more? Keep the paper, he replied. Then he added, how are you today? She said, I'm so cold. He says, I hope the sun comes out. Hope it warms up and you have a good day as he turned to go. He continued on with the cup of coffee warming his hand. About a half a block later, the conversation finally registered. He wrestled for a moment with what he should do, but it was too late. So he kept walking. Ever since then, he says, I've regretted not giving her the cup of hot coffee in Christ's name. It's just a cup of coffee. But it represents taking what we have seeing a need, putting our faith into practice and doing something about it. May we have a a faith that works at Village and not just a faith that talks. Let's pray. Lord God, our Father, you have done so much for us and we praise you for salvation. We praise you for the gift of forgiveness, the gift of grace, the gift of mercy. Lord, help us to to grab hold of your heart and help your heart to change us where we become people that follow that example and do that same thing for others. Help us to put our faith into practice. As James would say, in very practical ways. To not neglect the word, to not neglect coming together and proclaiming our faith, but to add to that actions that support that and prove that. Lord, I pray that you blow people away with the people of Village this week. With their willingness to help, with their words of encouragement, with their their words that reflect who you are, with actions that reflect who you are. Blow people away in this dark culture with what it means to really follow you. Lord, use us as we leave these doors for your kingdom and not just to have the week we planned. In your name, amen.